0: One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello, this is The Real Story with me, Rithala Shah, and this week we're heading to India as the country gears up for elections. That's a jaunty campaign tune from India's ruling BJP party. According to the song, the word in everyone's mouth, the BJP should form the government. The good people have confirmed their view. Narendra Modi should be the leader. Well, the BJP headed by Narendra Modi is in charge right now. But will India's election, which kicks off in April, change the position of the parties? When the Hindu nationalists came to power five years ago, they won by a landslide, crushing the alliance led by the Indian National Congress. The BJP had dismissed the opposition as the party of the elite and economic stagnation. This time, the party's portraying itself as the party of economic success and national security, but it's also been accused of unleashing ethnic tensions and restricting human rights. Congress says the BJP's destroying India's secular ideals, and it frames this vote as a battle for India's soul. (laughs) Congress takes a musical approach to campaigning too. That song claims everyone is calling out for Congress this time. We'll bring an end to joblessness and hunger and make the farmers confident again. The party's dynastic leadership is fighting back with Rahul Gandhi at the helm. He has his father, grandmother and great-grandfather to look up to as former prime ministers of India. The BJP, Congress and the myriad of regional parties which are growing in importance at a national level have begun nominating candidates and will be launching their manifestos very shortly. So what's at stake in this election for India? To discuss the social, economic and religious ideas which are likely to be thrown up in the course of the next few weeks, I'm joined by Sunil Kilnani, Professor of Politics and Director of the India Institute at King's College in London. He's in our Washington bureau. Ritika Khera, Associate Professor in the Economics and Public. Systems Group at the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad, which is where she joins us from. And with me in the studio, Dr Anand a London-based orthopaedic surgeon and vice president of the UK chapter of the Overseas Friends of the BJP. Welcome to you all. If I can begin, Sanal Kilnani, by asking you to describe the scale of India's election. How long does it take and how many people
1: participate? It's a massive exercise logistically. India's electorate is around about 800 million plus. To get that many people to the ballot boxes is is a logistically very complex exercise. The elections start in April and will run till late May. Uh, and there's a, a lot of security issues involved as well to make sure the elections are held peacefully. So security has to be moved around the country. The amount of money spent on elections also is massive. People estimate that this election might well be the most expensive election ever held in a democracy, even more expensive than U.S. elections. So logistically, it's a huge exercise, but hundreds of millions, all voting through electronic voting machines, which is also remarkable. And um, so
0: the number of polling stations, more than a million, and they ensure that no one ever has to travel more than two kilometres, kilometres—that's about 1.2 miles, to get to a polling station. And there's even a budget for elephants to carry machines, I think, to the most hard to reach areas. It is fantastic in numbers.
1: That's right. And You always have stories about these uh, voting booths that are established you know, for three voters in in the middle of the mountains or or in a very remote area where they'll have to have, by law, a voting booth available to people there. So yes, it is. It's a, it's a picturesque and massive.
0: So the scale is undeniable. Ritika Kera, what do you think is the most important issue or idea at stake in this election?
2: Perhaps I would say that the most important thing is that the election should be free and fair in letter and spirit. I think there are all kinds of anxieties about the role of money, but also just the the amount of money that is going to be spent and the manner in which it's going to be spent. That's one concern. The other is the use of social media in these elections. So now there's news reports of how Facebook is promoting advertisements for one party not necessarily directly by the party but their supporters. So what does it mean for the model code of conduct you know mm-hmm. how how is it going to deal with these new issues that are emerging because of technology and social media.
0: Those are ideas we will definitely come back to during the course of the program. Dr. Anandaria what would you choose as the most important issue or idea that's at stake?
3: I think this election is all about Modi. On one side, there is people who say, yes, we want to bring the Modi back. And on the other spectrum, the people says, we want to remove the Modi. We do not know what happens after that, but we want to remove the Modi. And I think in the 2014 election, the Modi's victory was a surprise to everyone, especially his getting an absolute majority. At that time, Modi was probably not known to all parts of India, but in last five years, he has been known to every corner of India now. And now the major theme in the election is Modi would come back or Modi would not.
0: So a prime minister, the prime minister of India, but a presidential contest. Again, a theme I hope we will return to. In India, though, just as in every other country, the economy is always high up voters' concerns. So what will the campaign strategy of the BJP be? A question for one of its national spokespeople, Nalinkoli.
4: Broadly speaking, for the BJP, it's going to be the leadership, the charismatic leadership of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the work that his government has done over the last five years, the achievements of the government in terms of looking at every segment of society, whether it's farmers, youth, women, people from different communities across the country. All that in comparison in terms of what has been done over the last five years versus the last 50 years in terms of electricity, in terms of minimum guarantee, etc., etc. And the third part would be obviously when we announce our vision document or a manifesto.
0: The BJP is very proud of its economic record, but is it an issue on which you may face some tough questions, for instance, the level of job creation?
4: Yes, of course. In a democracy, everyone's entitled to ask questions and even raise doubts on the institutional mechanisms that exist. However, a survey of the Confederation of Indian Industry estimates that between 13.9 and 15.4 million jobs were created every year. If it was so bad, then how is it that doesn't translate into social unrest? Or why is it that the BJP is winning many states?
0: Well, let's pick up on that question of jobs. Ritika, as an economist, Job numbers are actually quite controversial, aren't they? Economics and statistics have become quite politicised. Are there more jobs? Are there fewer jobs in India, would you say?
2: So, you know, the jobs data in India has always been not particularly great. The most reliable source is the National Sample Survey Organization. And the report that had been cleared by their own body, the National Statistical Commission, wasn't being released for a whole year. And finally, the heads of that organization, they resigned in protest. And then somehow the report was leaked. And the numbers were really bad. So, I think according to that report, the unemployment rates were the highest in 45 years or something like that. And then what ensued was actually more worrying. I mean, you know, I'm very happy to hear Mr. Kohli say that we are allowed to ask questions. But in fact, 108 economists, we had raised some questions about the jobs numbers and also the GDP growth rate. And what we got in response was a little clip from the finance minister, Mr. Arun Jaitli, who said. That that uh, we are so-called economists and we are compulsive contrarians and just basically not addressing the issues that were raised.
0: Tanul Kilnani, you heard Nalinkoli there suggest that actually there isn't unrest. So perhaps it's very hard to have accurate figures to growth figures in a sense make people feel better whether or not they have employment.
1: Well, I think it's actually not quite correct to say there isn't unrest. I mean, what you've seen some massive farmers' protests in the past few years. And I think this points to one of the core issues, going back to your earlier question, about what's at stake in this election. I mean, India is still vastly an agrarian economy. Most of the people still live on the land, although it's not a very productive agrarian economy. And that's really the problem. I mean, growth has been stagnant or worse in Indian agriculture. Culture, And that's a major, major issue at this election point. And in fact, you've seen lots of agrarian protest. So I think it's not quite right to say there hasn't been unrest. The question is, is that going to continue? One of the important points to note about India at the moment and why this is such an important moment in Indian history is that India is at a demographic inflection point. It's what economists and demographers call, you know, they've been talking about the demographic dividend, the fact that it's one of the last major societies in the world with a large youthful population. And really the challenge for Indian politicians and leaders and governments is – is that youth bulge, as it's called, going to be productive for India, for Indian society and the Indian economy? Or is it going to become something that is a threat in the sense that it can be channelized into forms of hyper-nationalism or social unrest and in a variety of other undesirable forms, I think. So the question of jobs, the question of growth, and the question of growth, particularly in the countryside, I think are all crucial issues. And as Rithi has suggested. The problem at the moment is that we don't really have very reliable figures and statistics about this.
0: Let's hear a little bit about how Congress might tackle the economy. MV Rajiv Gauda is one of the party's national spokesmen.
5: If you look at the Modi government, at one level, it's not been able to deliver the promises they made when they were elected, when they raised the hopes of the people of India. And their record has been extraordinarily terrible. Such as? Yes. Just take something like the economy. The economy is in terrible shape. We've been hemorrhaging jobs over the last few years. What we have is now not jobless growth, but job loss growth. We have 11 million people who have been estimated to have lost jobs just in the last year. Then there's acute distress in rural India. Farmers are not even able to recoup the costs. Of production. You will see GDP growth actually being much lower and, and sliding down. And the biggest blows to the Indian economy were demonetization, for which Mr. Modi is singularly responsible, which shaved 2% growth of GDP and hurt a large number of people in the unorganized sector, caused immense damage for no reason other than his own personal glory.
0: Lots of criticism there, uh, Dr. Arya, from the Congress perspective. Do you think that the BJP can politically defend its economic re- record with ease, given the questions about jobs, the questions raised by demonetization and, and this issue of, of rural poverty and farmers' suicides and so on?
3: I mean, India's problems has not been created in just last five years. India has much worse problems for the mismanagement of past 60, 70 years. And Modi has tried to tackle them. In terms of the jobs, I can simply say that there is a bit confusion. What do you mean by jobs? There is a lot of jobs has been created for the people by self-employment. People who could never think of getting a loan from a bank, those people have got loan, and those people have started their own businesses. That need to be included. But I agree with the earlier comments that there is no reliable system in the India to include all these things which create livelihood. So I would say in that terms, the situation is much, much better. In terms of the macroeconomic data, we can see that the inflation is down. The growth rate is up. the India's ease of doing business has remarkably improved. And India has done much, much better if you compare to the past time over there.
0: Ritika, if I can bring you back in this is an issue this this track question of a track record one that in a sense the bjp has been able to deploy very successfully that congress was in power for many many years and actually during that time growth levels were poor poverty was rampant it has been a very powerful message to communicate to the voters
2: Uh, It may be a powerful message to communicate, but I'm not sure if it's factually true. So I think in terms of controlling the narrative, the BJP is fantastic. I mean, they're just unparalleled. But I do think that ultimately people do see through because, you know, they can see around them that this messaging isn't really matching their own reality. And so, you know, it may reflect in the way they vote. They may not say openly what they're thinking. But in fact, because they're experiencing the joblessness or the insecurities, etc, they would vote very differently. The Congress track record on growth has not been abysmal. I can't say very clearly about the job creation, etc. But on growth, the Congress hasn't done particularly badly. And you know, I think we've every decade, the average growth rate goes up by 1% or so. Sunil so, no, Kalani, uh, so I, I think you you wanted yeah, to come in.
1: I, I mean, I, I I just wanted to come in and, and say, you know, yes, I think Dr. Anand is, is right in the sense that, you know, Modi, uh, the Modi government has done some things that have been positive for the economy, not least the introduction of a more, more rational, still to be further rationalized tax system for the whole country. And I think, you know, that's building on earlier policy initiatives of earlier governments. And it has, you know, it's introduced an important bankruptcy law, which has allowed Indian companies to be wound up, which couldn't be done before. So there have been important moves in terms of making a a more pro-business friendly atmosphere in India. But at the same time, I think whether Modi has been in favor of markets themselves is questionable. For example, India has continued to be protectionist on tariffs and so on. So certain Indian if you like, corporations and capitalist businessmen have done very well in the current climate. You know, the fact is India now has about 120 billionaires at the same time as it has extremely deprived people. So it's true that some have done well in the current climate. And Modi certainly has promised development. His great promise in the 2014 election was development for all. That, I think, is a much harder claim to sustain on the evidence. It's been development for some.
0: Rithika, as an economist, again, who works on anti-poverty policies, are there anti-poverty policies that positively work?
2: Yes. So, you know, in the UPA years, there were two or three important initiatives. One is the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. This is when the UPA
0: years are when Congress was last in power.
2: Yeah, 2004 to 2014, 10 years. And that's a law that basically makes the government an employer of the last resort for people in rural areas who are willing to work at the minimum wage. The other important thing, which actually perhaps has a bigger impact on poverty, is the National Food Security Act, which was enacted in 2013, that basically expanded access to subsidized food rations to about two thirds of the population. And this system bridges a about 20 percent of the poverty gap. Dr. Arya. Um, I imagine
0: that the BJP would want to champion the Aadhaar project, which is a sort of an ID card, a biometric ID card that was given to poor people or people actually all over India. And it's a way to claim welfare. How successful would you say that has been? This Aadhaar
3: card itself shows that BJP actually has adopted and continued the good policies of previous government. I visited India just about two weeks ago, southern India, and I was surprised to see that everyone, even the villagers, the telewala, the fruitwala, they all have Aadhaar cards. They know about it and it becomes their identity. So Aadhaar card, I think, is, is one of the very good reform that BJP government has been able to implement in the India. Hrithika?
2: Aadhaar was really one of the worst policies that the second term of the Congress government, we have been vociferously opposing it since 2010. Its compulsory integration with all forms of social welfare has caused 42 deaths so far. I think it's not just eating up the welfare programs, but it's also a huge threat to the right to privacy. And the problem is that the BJP has embraced it as its own. So as far as citizens are concerned, there's really no political party to go to, apart from one or two regional parties who have actually seen through the project. And one of the Supreme Court judges who also said that this is an unconstitutional project. Dr.
3: Arya. Then Ritika, what do you suggest? Should the India people should not have a national ID?
2: I think there isn't really a need for a national integrated ID and certainly not for one that is made compulsory in this particular way. What has happened is that their names have been struck off welfare lists, whether it's subsidized rations or work under NREG or old age pensions because they didn't link their Aadhaar number. What the government did is they struck their names off saying that this was a case of identity fraud and then went to the public and said that look Aadhaar has helped us save so many millions of rupees. Dr.
3: So it is the implementation. It is not the Aadhaar card itself.
2: So much yeah. more convenient. Kandali, before, the before we position. wrap
3: up
0: this half hour, then two things. The idea of, of a national identity, how does it sit within a democracy? And can these ideas of universal welfare work in a country as vast as India?
1: Well, I think, I mean, the, the card is, as, as you can tell, a source of great contention in India. There are certainly advantages to be had. One of the problems, though, is Ritika suggested, the, the attempt to link it to other bits of information, for example, your mobile telephone number, your bank account, so that effectively the government can shut down the citizen if they don't like what they're saying or what they're doing or whatever. Adha card was supposed to be enabling. It was supposed to give the poor the opportunity to access services. In fact, it's being used to exclude them because at hospitals and at various places, if you don't have an Aadhaar card, you're actually excluded from certain services that as a citizen you ought to be getting. One of the problems has been that India has proliferated more and more and more policy programs to deal with poverty. So with Aadhar and with the minimum income idea, the promise is to try and rationalize and streamline it into one program that reaches the people whom it's supposed to reach. That hasn't happened yet, but I think the idea is right. I'm going to move on because there's lots of ground to cover. And one of the issues that most
0: recently has drawn international attention to India is the rivalry with Pakistan and the issue of Kashmir. Kashmir is, of course, a territory partially controlled by each country, but claimed fully by both. And the latest tension, which tipped over into conflict, began in mid-February when a suicide bomber killed more than 40 Indian soldiers deployed in Indian-administered Kashmir. Indian jets retaliated, targeting positions in Pakistani-controlled areas. And then Pakistan made a counterattack, engaging Indian fighters in mid-air. And there was the downing of an Indian aircraft. The rest of the world watched nervously as tensions ratcheted up between the two nuclear-armed neighbours. It was a really critical moment. Sunil Kilnani, it also demonstrated, if you like, the importance of Narendra Modi as a figure. We talked at the beginning about this very presidential style he has. In a sense, was this rather good for his political ambitions for this electoral campaign that's kicking off?
1: I think it certainly was good for his electoral campaign. Was it good for him as a political leader on the regional and international stage? I think there one can ask a number of different questions. I mean, Modi, when he came into power in 2014, made a big play of wanting to reconcile and harmonize India's immediate neighborhood, better relations with Pakistan, with Bangladesh, with Nepal, with Sri Lanka, and of course, with China. Actually, five years down the road, none of that has really happened. India's relations with Pakistan are very, very bad, as you've suggested, they almost dipped into war recently. And India's relations with its other smaller neighborhood countries have also not been good. And with China, India almost entered into a military confrontation in 2017. So the attempt to establish a more conducive atmosphere for India's economic growth in its immediate neighbourhood hasn't really come off. Anandaria, do you think this idea of being the party of security is one that you can sell yourself
0: on as a party?
3: For BJP, the national security is not an election issue. But obviously, if a common man feels secure that the terrorists who attacked our security forces has been taught a lesson, has been paid back, obviously a person would feel that my country is in the hands of a more decisive leader. Now, just yesterday, the Modi made a broadcast that India entered into the Space League. And then the previous chief of the space organization revealed that they were ready to do it several years ago. But the government of that time did not allow them to do it. All it proves that Modi has a decisive leadership. And as far as security is concerned, it's not an election issue for BJP at all.
1: Certainly being able to claim the success of an anti-satellite missile launch is an electoral boon. And Prime Minister Modi has been trying to shift India into much more of a presidential form of politics. And certainly there have been discussions about trying to rewrite the Indian constitution in a more presidential form. This is all part of what Modi describes as a new India, which in a sense would be the inauguration of a second republic. Now, I think there are really deep issues about the nature of Indian democracy at stake here. And this that's another reason why I think this election is an inflection point potentially in India's democracy, because if there were to be another clear term with a clear majority for the current government, there could be much strengthened efforts to rewrite the nature of Indian democracy and the nature of the Indian constitution. Uh, Sunil, and I think that is, that, is, that is something that all Indian citizens really have to reflect on when they uh, go to the S- polls over the Sunil, next week. Modi
3: hasn't done anything to change constitution. I didn't say he'd done anything no, so no, far. You mentioned about yeah. it. constitutional change. Modi has absolutely yeah. done nothing. He believes in parliamentary democracy. BJP believes in parliamentary democracy. And this is a completely wrong right. allegation that you put on the Modi, that he wanted to change the constitution to a parliamentary system of democracy. No,
1: he's not. There's been a number of different discussions about the nature of the Indian constitution and how it needs to be rewritten. I, I agree that nothing has happened so far. But it's, it's but that it's, doesn't it's, mean it won't happen I, in I the exactly, future. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, let's, 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 well, let's yeah, return. So
0: we do not know what's happened in the future. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. Hold that thought. We have to take a short break now, but just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're looking at the Indian election. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. Subscribe so you never miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story, or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. Email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story, with me, Ritula Shah, looking at India's general election. We're joined by Professor Sunil Kilnani, he's in our Washington Bureau, the economist Rithika Kera, who's in Ahmedabad in Gujarat, and with me here in the studio, Dr Anand Arya, Vice President of the UK Chapter of the Overseas Friends of the BJP. Welcome to you all. Earlier in the programme, we discussed the economy. There's plenty more to talk about. I want to start by talking about India's minorities communal violence has long been a feature of Indian society, but the BJP, with its roots in Hindu nationalism, has faced particular scrutiny for its treatment of minorities, whether it's the Dalits, the people who find themselves at the bottom of India's caste system, or perhaps Muslims who don't share the Hindu belief that cows are sacred. During the BJP's time in government, human rights groups estimate that tens of people have been beaten to death by so-called cow protection groups. Most were herders or cattle traders. I asked the BJP spokesperson Nali, in Kohli, what the BJP can do to show the world that India's minorities are safe.
6: We
4: don't need to convince the rest of the world because the track record of those who act against minorities is for the world to see. And that's not India. That's probably a good example would be to see Pakistan, where now also you have uh, young girls being kidnapped, forcibly converted against their wishes and married off. So I think that kind of situation exists in other parts of the world. In India, The Constitution gives equal rights to every Indian citizen, irrespective of their religion. As far as the BJP is there, our agenda in 2014 was Sabka Saad, Sabka Vikas, which is development for all, carrying everyone along. So show us a single scheme of the government in its conceptualization or in its implementation, which distinguishes between any Indian citizen on the basis of religion, region, caste or anything else. So therefore we believe in our track record not on the allegations that are made against us and we believe the voters will
0: decide on that Sunil Kulnani, the question of minorities minority rights is a perennial one in India will it be a crucial one in this election
1: I don't know that it'll be a crucial one in elect- in, in terms of how ele- the electorate decides but I think it's a it's a crucial point in the history of how minorities are Treated in India, in some ways, the last five years, the BJP can quite rightly claim that there haven't been massive religious riots. For instance, there haven't been what in India called communal riots, which they had been most recently uh, in a large scale in 2002 in Gujarat when Modi was chief minister there. So there haven't been that kind of violence. But what has happened is a different kind of, if you like, everyday violence um, that has sort of entered Indian life, which is directed against the minorities and against uh, Dalits. And so you've had, as you mentioned, uh, killings in the name of protecting the cow. You've had attacks and killings of Dalits where they've overstepped uh, caste boundaries as they're seen. And so you've had a kind of the embedding of a kind of atmosphere of threat and violence towards minorities in everyday life and the government or those who are charged with protecting Indian citizens haven't acted to stop that. They have been sort of turning a blind eye or have been silent on these issues and Modi himself when some of these incidents have occurred has not said very much or has said well this is what happens Uh, you know this is just part of everyday life and this is more at the level of India's democracy. The challenge now is you know is 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 India going to transform into a kind of majoritarian democracy where it's the voice, rights and identity of the majority, who in India's case happens to be the Hindu community, which dominates the shape of public life. So in both those respects, I think minorities and the rights of minorities are at stake in this election.
0: Dr. Arya, do you think that is in a sense an unspoken aim, a a destination for a BJP-led government, that it should be a more majoritarian India? Let me just tell you something more basic than that.
3: India is not secular because India's constitution says that India should be secular. The secularism is in the DNA of the India. The Syrian Christians are in India for the last 2,000 years. When Jews were being persecuted throughout the world, it is the India that gave them shelter. The Muslims came to India Thirteen, fourteen hundred 1400 years ago and they've lived and flourished here. So India has given space has respected every faith every religion and the secularism is in the DNA of Indian people. Now BJP being associated with a nationalistic viewpoint as soon as the BJP comes somewhere in prominence there is immediately the mindset is such oh, the BJP is dominant now so there would be the minorities or the Muslims would be persecuted. So that's the mindset. But we need to look at the facts and figures. During five years of the BJP rule at the centre, has the centre done anything which has disfavored the minorities or which has put them into disadvantage? No, you cannot quote a single example. As far as the isolated violence is concerned, India is a huge country. It's a law and order problem. The state governments are responsible for that. They should take the rightful action.
1: Could I just come in on that? Because yes. I think it's um, very dangerous when we start to talk about secularism being in the DNA of a society or, has, as Prime Minister Modi has said, democracy is in the blood of Indians. I actually think those sorts of formulations are very dangerous. I think secularism, democracy, the protection of minority rights, these are institutional forms that have to be built and protected. Uh, no culture is naturally democratic or naturally tolerant or naturally secular. But in if- fact, most cultures are the opposite. You have to but, build but, institutions but, to protect those kinds of freedoms. But if you see, those, if you see the facts kinds and, and figures,
3: examples which I gave to um, you, are they not true or not, Sunil, that Jews were given shelter in India when they were being well, persecuted I, I in the whole world? I don't even think you
1: can necessarily talk about India at that moment. They were given shelter in one particular part on the Malabar coast because there was a particular arrangement then. Yeah, but, 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 so, if, but if
0: you go back to your, yeah. your broader point, yeah. uh, Sunil Kilnani, if, as you suggest, it's not an election issue, are you saying then, if it well, is about an idea, about the construction of democracy, about the protection of
1: democracy, that it's an idea that's being lost? I'm sorry, I, I perhaps somewhat misspoke or over-exaggerated when I said it's not an election issue. It is an election issue in the sense that uh, Muslims and Dalits I think feel deeply alienated from the BJP at the moment and are, un- are very unlikely to vote for them. Who exactly they'll vote for is another question. So in that sense, I think there is an alienation and a sense of disenfranchisement of the, of the minorities and particularly in certain states as well. For instance, Kashmir, uh, which feels totally disenfranchised uh, within Indian democracy.
3: When you say that disenfranchisement and franchised. Are there Muslims being stopped voting well, I, anywhere? I,
1: let me point out two things there. Yeah. So, so one, for example, in India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh, uh, mm. 200, over 200 million people, mm. around 20%, 19% are Muslims. The BJP is in power there, has over 400 seats in the in the state assembly. Not a single Muslim is represented among the BJP. That's a different uh, issue. That's, that Similarly, is a different in the Indian National no, no, but Parliament, in the Indian National Parliament, the BJP the doesn't have a single no, you, you cannot uh, object. To how MP. i
3: conduct my house how i <laughs> conduct whom i make friends okay ritika ritika yeah. if i can bring you in
2: Yeah, I think it's not a question of whether secularism is in the DNA of the Indian people, but of these political parties, yeah? And I think if you look at what the ideologues of the BJP have said in their writings, etc., then it's very clear that they don't particularly care that much for secularism. And, And I think Sunil is exactly right. These are very difficult things. You have to work hard at them. It's not something about just being in your blood. And, you know, to this argument that is it not true that we gave shelter to the Parsis or the Jews or whatever, we have to live in the present. What are we doing in the present? I just, I just I showed a know. trend.
3: I just, I can just, I, I just gave an examples that how the Indian I, population uh, behaved. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So uh, just to finish, you know, this persecution of Dalits and the very open lynchings, you know, they make videos of these people, then they circulate it. It's a terrorizing tactic, right? I mean, I made the mistake of clicking on one. And you know, it really does disturb me till today. And when media have been raising these issues, they have been, uh, you know, asked to leave politely. So the editor of a national daily had to go back to New York. There, There has been some churn when other uncomfortable stories have been brought to light. On the other hand, uh,
0: the idea of, of Hindutva or the idea of a Hindu state is politically perhaps rather successful. Rahul Gandhi's been accused by some of, of embracing a softer version of Hindu nationalism, soft Hindutva. Critics mm-hmm. have yes. accused him of too many temple visits and not talking enough about religious minorities. I yeah. asked the Congress spokesperson, MV Rajiv Gauda, if that was a fair allegation.
5: Actually, uh, there are many misinterpretations. First of all, the BJP's foundations are not in Hinduism. They are basically utilizing my religion for political purposes. They want a Hindu majoritarian India, which is an antithesis of the secular ethos, which underlies India, our culture, our history, etc., and that's not our vision and that's not been the congress that's not how the congress has built modern india as far as rahul gandhi's temple visits are concerned he is a practicing hindu as are many congress leaders including me and what's happening now is that you're all noticing his visits to temples and highlighting them and calling them soft Hindutva. We visit not just temples, we visit churches and mosques. And in that sense, India is a, is a very religious country. We would love to ensure that we have intercommunal harmony and that we celebrate you know, each other's religions rather than try and victimize one or two minority religions and try to paint them in dark colors.
0: Ritika, that's one way of perhaps rejecting that allegation, but is another way, rather perhaps more cynical way of looking at it, that the BJP has come up with a very clear way of, of creating a national identity, something that Congress is simply unable to do.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, this. Uh, the Congress reaction to the BJP is actually just tells you what little choice Indian voters are left with. I think this is a very terrible defense coming from Mr. Gauda. and I just quickly, you know, I disagree a little bit with what Sunil said. It's not about the Hindu majority because Dalits are supposed to be in the Hindu fold but the BJP is not for the Dalits so it's actually an oppressive minority that's imposing its kind of vision of India on these people and this is also very evident by the way in the vote shares in the 2014 election where the BJP got 31% of the vote share, which of course translated into many, many more votes.
0: Okay. I- Let's return to the election itself and the campaign in particular. The cheapness of mobile phones means that India is connected and, a stereotype alert, Indians love to talk. They were made for social media. The country also boasts the highest numbers of Facebook and WhatsApp users in the world. And the politicians are keenly aware of the power of phones to send bespoke messages to even the hardest-to-reach elements of the electorate. Sangeeta Mahapatra is a researcher with the GIGA Institute of Asian Studies in Hamburg, in Germany, and her work focuses on the social media strategies of the Indian political parties.
6: When it comes to politics, in 2014 it was dubbed India's first social media elections, especially Facebook was aggressively used by political parties to reach out to voters. But in the last five years, what we have seen that while in 2014, there were more upwardly mobile young voters were targeted, because they were the primary users of social media. But in the past five years, with cheaper data, and very cheap Chinese made smartphone handsets flooding India, we see more and more rural users of social media. And therefore, this is the perfect platform for political parties to reach out to voters, even in what is called dark median areas, where internet connection might be spotty, but they would still be able to reach them. So what kind of strategy are they employing then,
0: given that they can reach these voters who previously might have been quite hard to connect with?
6: When it comes to WhatsApp and vernacular messaging services like ShareChat and Hello!, they are used by political parties to micro target voters through personalized messages, like which may be both dog whistling to their religious caste, economic and political prejudices or addressing their constituency level grievances and the constantly and even apps like you have the Narendra Modi app, which is a great way to connect to voters. you can sign up and you can directly post your views about what you feel about certain policies or participate in polls. He also has a to-do list for citizens. So people feel invested in this whole process and they are connected with politics 24-7.
0: And presumably the fact that they're connected with politics 24-7 means that the political parties can mine the data that they then leave on these apps.
6: There's an interesting thing here, let me tell you. There was this uh, person called Shivam Shankar Singh. He was one of the BJP information technology cell workers. He used to work for them. And last year he left it. He said in a conference in Bangalore, and he came out with a book also about it, how voter profile is done at the micro level. They get these, how they target their messages according to voters right at the constituency and the booth level. That's the lowest level level. So they get data of voters from electoral rolls. And then the field agent, he has enough experience to know by the surname of the voter, what his religion or caste affiliation is. Then from third party vendors, they get the telephone numbers of these voters. And they also get electricity usage to know what is the economic profile of these voters. Then they create a a message that they think would work with them and send it through WhatsApp.
0: So very specific targeted messaging.
6: So as far as the
0: voters are concerned, how much digital literacy is there? How able are they to recognise a political message from an information message from something that might just be fake news?
6: That's the biggest concern here because at the time of onboarding, whether they go to any small shop and buy a cheap handset and get internet connection for the first time, They don't have digital literacy and they cannot spot the fake from the real and therefore they get sucked into this, you know, this universe of alternative reality and whatever false information might masquerade as facts and they might tend to believe it. So political parties might not do that, means they're too intelligent to do that, but they have enough supporters and proxies who might do the work for them, who actually do the work for them. So No doubt about it, that WhatsApp plays a very important role in getting the message across. Now, whether they act on that message or not for actually voting, I don't know. But the link between WhatsApp and violence is there, where call to action campaigns have worked on WhatsApp when it comes to even the good ways for mobilizing. Also, it has worked.
0: Sangeeta Mahapatra there. Ritika, you work with some of India's poorest people. From what you see, how significant do you think the internet, social media is in terms of their political influences?
2: I think it's hard to say about the political influence of uh, these new technologies, which even for us, you know, even for people in my kind of social class, it took a while before they understood that WhatsApp forwards could have fake news and they shouldn't be taken as the gospel truth, etc. One thing that Sangeeta Mahapatra said, which is very disturbing, and I think which needs a lot of attention is, you know, she says how they combine different data sets to do these micro-targeting. So this is really Facebook Cambridge Analytica, Hmm. happening in India, right? Not only are they using Facebook data, but they're also integrating these data. And, you know, now there's an effort to link Aadhaar as well and it's going to become like a mega Facebook project or like the or like China's social crediting system where, you, you know, you hand everything over on a platter to all kinds of data mining projects, including political ones. You know, I mean, to use so it for profit is one thing, but to use it to undermine electoral processes, I think is a very dangerous thing. So it,
0: that's the digital landscape and many of the problems you describe could arguably pinned at the door of, of any democracy today. What about the state of India's more traditional media? It's vibrant. There's so many television channels, so many newspapers.
1: Yeah, I had a couple of things to say about that. I mean, I I think that, you know, as you say, this is something that's happening in democracies across the world, but it's particularly worrying, I think, in the Indian case because the scale but also the significance of India's democracy. When you combine it with what something we said right at the beginning about the untransparency of electoral funding, the fact that we don't know, even though there have been supposed electoral reforms in electoral funding, in fact, they've made it more uh, uh, opaque about who's funding parties. You combine that with these very powerful technological tools of targeting messages. And then in fact, while the media the Indian media that Press media and the electronic media spoken of as being vibrant. Actually, it's very much in the control of several large corporate houses mm. so that the space for dissent or differing views has been narrowing in the Indian media, in fact. So I, I, I think we're getting to a situation where the production of diverse views in the media is less and less possible. This is a very serious challenge for the future of Indian democracy. How can it maintain uh, reliable sources of information and of true data about this society no. which is in such fast change at the moment?
3: Yeah, I I Sunil I agree with you that the whatever information I you know get sitting in London and uh, looking at various newspapers of Indian newspapers on the internet that most of the what you call mainstream English media is being controlled by either some corporate houses, business houses, or some groups. Hmm. I mean, I was surprised to know somebody sent me the whole list of the, all the major Indian newspapers and how they were all being majority owned by the people sitting in the other countries. And hmm. what I see from the news item is that that the the newspapers actually, they put their views at the news. So it, earlier hmm. we used to say that the the news are sacred and views are a dozen a dime. But now it's the opposite way around. Well,
0: that's a bigger discussion about the media all over the place. But yeah. if that brings us, though, a free press is critical to yeah. any democracy, to the yeah. functioning of democracy. So in your view, then, how democratic is India's democracy? We talked about the scale of it at the beginning. But is it strong? Is it healthy?
3: Well, I think, the, you know, the most important part about India's democracy is that that in India, the democracy it's survived for so long. Since 1947, the democracy has survived, flourished, and in India, the, in the elections, a lot of things are said, but ultimately the transformation of power happens in a very peaceful, democratic way. And a big transformation have happened. In 1977 it happened, 2014 it has happened, in between it has happened there. So I think that is the big strength of Indian democracy. But at the same time, this is my personal view, that because the participant in the Indian democracy, that means the lot of voters, they are not educated and literate enough, so they are influenced by extraneous factors Rather than deciding well, to, to to vote the party based on policies, they actually go by my caste, my community. Somebody has paid well, me. With
0: Ritika, the... vote vote sport
3: and
2: soul. Do you think? you know this kind of uh, research is really hard to do right so it's very hard to you can only rely on anecdotes so certainly there are uh, stories of dummy candidates being put up and basically it is to cut the votes of the opposing party so whichever party has a lot of money is able to make dummy candidates stand they also buy and sell they give booze apparently the night before it's called katal ki rat the night of the murder (laughs) some very dramatic terms can I quickly say something about free press, please? Mm. There's also this problem of progressive media being pushed to include not so progressive voices in the name of bringing balance. So there's this problem of false equivalence. So if there's a panel on lynchings, they'll be forced to include somebody who says, oh, well, you know, but they were... Lynchings you know, are a good cars. idea. Mm. Golly. No, no, they they find a way of condoning that kind of violence. So, uh, and, you know, that doesn't. that's ne- not necessarily a good thing for the media okay. uh, to be doing. We're
0: coming to the end. of our our time. Sunil Kilnani, if I can ask you, if you were to assess the state of Indian democracy on
1: the eve of this election, is it healthy? (laughs) Um, It's uh, not in its best health, I would say. Um, We've touched on some of the issues. I think, you know, the other challenge that it's facing is many of its institutions, its independent institutions, whether it's the Reserve Bank of India, that's to say the Central Bank, the Supreme Court, or the Election Commission, or even the military, these are increasingly being politicized, increasingly being subject to political pressures. This has always been the case. I mean, Congress governments have done this in the past, too. Congress governments have been very bad for the Indian media and press as well. But it's all coming together at the moment in a way that but the crucial pillars of Indian democracy, I think, are under strain. So it's, you know, it's staggering on. Indian democracy, as Anandaria said, it, it's amazing that it's survived. But we shouldn't take it for granted. It's survived because people have fought and struggled for it and have worked hard to keep it alive. And if citizens don't continue doing that in India, well, then we may see a very different type of politics in the years to come.
0: So a final thought from each of you. If we were to reconvene in five years' time before the next election... What would your hope for India be, Dr. Arya?
3: Well, I would hope that India would have developed further. The people would be more educated. There would be more cleanliness in the world. The people would be more disciplined there. And the people would be more happy. And I do not know whether the... Whosoever comes as the next prime minister, I would be as good or maybe better than Modi. Or if Modi comes back, then he continued his, his schemes of development of India. So I'm very optimistic that whatever happens india has an inherent strength indian people are very capable and india would develop further and i'm very very you know confident of it that in five years time india would be much further ahead than what it is right now
0: ritika khera
2: i'm hoping for a weak coalition to come to power at the end of these elections it doesn't matter which party it's headed by but it should at least be a weak coalition so nothing it's gets done perceived No, in fact, I think that uh, weak coalitions have been good periods for India. So certainly UPA1 was better than UPA2. The first term of the Congress-headed coalition was better than the second one because in the second one, they got more seats. So that's one thing. And uh, obviously, like Dr. Arya said, uh, I also want more development, except my conception of development, I think, is slightly different. I want much more focus on health and education and, you know, people's everyday lives rather than mega projects like the big statue of unity, etc.?
1: Well, yes, I mean, I think, you know, certainly growth and a more equitable form of growth. I think one of the problems that India is facing is great regional disparities, great risk disparities across social classes and great gender disparities. So some way of trying to equalize some of those disparities, because those will be otherwise a challenge to India's future. And above all, what I'd like to see in five years time is a society that celebrates its diversity and openness much more vigorously, is not sort of afraid of diversity. That's the, it was diversity that India was founded to propagate and to nurture. And I think that's what Indian democracy is about. And, you know, we're at a moment now where India is a youthful society, and it should be taking advantage of the fact that it's been open and democratic. It could be, and it is in many ways, one of the most potentially creative societies in the world. And I think that's something that one would like to see really Flourish in the next years. Just
3: my final comment to Ritika if a weak coalition comes to power, everyone would be able to dictate to them and we would, would be here not five years maybe in one year time
1: <laughs> Sorry on, on the That's point what of what was said on of the
2: first UPA government they said is it going to last two months six months they actually well, lasted five all years the, All the corruption and cases
1: scandals fact, scandals, scandals, uh, on scandals On the point came of coalition time, governments yeah. actually yeah. all the major in reforms uh, of Indian policy in the last 25 years have happened under weak coalition governments okay. So for well, example we'll see. Time We must end it there <laughs> otherwise
0: we will have gone into the next week's programme okay. as well there's so much to talk about. Thank you all very much. Go vote. <laughs> that's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you very much to all our guests, Professor Sunil Kilnani, economist Rithika Kera and Dr Anandaria. For me and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.